morning, everybody. We're so glad that you're here at the river today, and happy Mother's Day to moms, and uh, glad to be with you today. My name is John Firsty. I'm the associate pastor here, and I get the great privilege today of speaking to you, and I, uh, I thank you in advance for your kind attention as I uh, share today. So I turned 52 years old this year. Why? Thank you. So I mean, well, you're plotting that I haven't died yet. I don't know what that means. When you turn an age like that, you start thinking about your end game, your end game, right? Where's the trajectory of my life taking me? You start thinking questions like that. What kind of a person am I going to be in old age? Because it's quickly approaching, you know, when you hit this age. What kind of character am I going to have? What kind of soul will I have as an older person? Do you, do you ever think about your end game, end of your life? What kind of person, what kind of old person you're going to be? You think about that? See, now that I'm firmly planted here in middle age, I find myself thinking about these questions a little differently than I used to. Because when you're young, let's say you're in your 20s, your 30s, you know, you tend to be confident about your potential to age well. You know, and think, oh, I'll be a cool guy when I'm old. But then you live through your 40s, and you get into your 50s, and you realize it's, you know, it's not just a given that I'm going to age well. It's very possible I could turn out to be a real jerk by the end. I could, I could turn into this guy. <laughs> Yelling at the kids out in the hallway, shut up! That's one possible end game. Another possibility that's a little bit more cheery. This is the guy I, I hope will be me. <laughs> I'm going to have to learn some moves by then. That guy's got it going on. So this is me, age 75. Very sweet. I think at the end here, Sarah even makes an appearance. Let's see. No, 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 wait, wait. Here she comes. There she is. All right. My lovely wife. End games. Things end up in different places. You know, my wife, Sarah, tells the story of her two grandmothers. She had two very different grandmothers. Both of them had very strong Christian faith, but the end game for each of them was quite different because uh, they just became very different people, uh, even though they shared that same faith. And I saw this firsthand. One of these grandmothers became very sweet and kind and just attractive and a lovely person. The other one, not so much, (laughs) not so much. So I thought we'd try a little exercise to begin today where we think about our own preferred future. I'll give you a one-minute exercise, okay? In the next 60 seconds, could you grab a pen and somewhere on your program or wherever you wish, 60 seconds to write down as many adjectives, okay, descriptive words that you hope will describe you at age 75. You got it? One minute, write down adjectives that you hope will describe you when you are 75 years old, 75. Okay. 
I always like giving out an assignment when we're sitting in this classroom. It just seems right. Okay, what do you got? Somebody shout out a couple of the adjectives that you have. Just hope, hopefully describing yourself. What is it? Sexy. Very good. Hot. All right, this section is burning up over here. What do you guys got? Playful. Nice. Gracious. Generous. Wise. Happy. Adventurous. Adventurous. Very good. Powerful and hot. <laughs> These are great. What fun. That's a great exercise to start thinking about our end game a little bit. Well, here's the deal. We are in a sermon series called Faith Misunderstood. Faith Misunderstood. And it's all about uncovering misunderstandings and approaches to faith that can lead us in the wrong direction and away from our desired end game. It's kind of like what I learned with my grandmother. Some approaches to faith actually lead us away from the very qualities we most desire. So the first in our sermon series was called, our first sermon was called, God Wants You to Be You, three weeks ago. Very good. And then the second one was called, Faith is Not Belief. That was interesting. Caroline spoke on that. Last week, we talked about when the Bible makes you mean. If you were here last week, you probably know it was a landmark Sunday. It really was. It was a defining moment, we feel, for us as a church. We talked about our approach to the Bible, and in particular, our approach to the LGBT community, and it was just powerful. It was so good and so powerful, and in our opinion, it was like a must-hear sermon if you really want to know what we're all about, or must-see, because as you can see, we're videotaping these days. And, uh, and we're putting stuff online and, and making sure that people are kind of getting a chance to hear if you weren't here. If you weren't here, this is one you're going to want to listen to. It was really very, very powerful and a defining moment. So if, you're, if you feel like the river is your home, church, this is, this is a sermon last week you want to hear. Or if you just want to know what our thoughts are on this topic, uh, this is one to listen to. It'll be on the River app. You can get the link there and listen to it or find the YouTube link there. Whoops. Uh, but we'd love for you to listen to that. But today, I'm going to speak about this topic I'm calling the death grip. The death grip. There's an approach to life that I think is best summed up with this image right here. A tightly closed fist, okay? So imagine for a minute, fingers are clenched, muscles constricted, this grip is squeezing. You know, a hand that is grasping hold of something, hanging on firmly, okay? Most times, this is how we go after life. We figure out the things that are important to us, whether that's career, relationships, family, a philosophy of life, or faith, whatever it is, and then we grab onto it and we hold on for dear life. I'm going to pitch that that is faith is misunderstood. So faith misunderstood, for example, would be this idea of having that kind of grip on spiritual things. Have a tight grasp on the truth, God's truth, right? Holding on to it, living accordingly, growing more and more convinced, deeper conviction, more confidence over time, living accordingly. Now that sounds right, but I'm going to pitch that actually it doesn't lead to life. It doesn't lead to that end game that we all want. Because what it does is it puts us in a posture 
that ends up working against us. It becomes a death grip. So I propose that this mentality really isn't going to lead us where we want, even if we're holding on to good things. It's a posture. So on the other hand, Jesus proposes a different approach to life, one that would be summed up in this image. Two open hands, palms up, relaxed. That's, there's an openness there. There's a, there's a letting go there. There's a gentleness there. There's a sense of possibility here. It's a very different posture. So Jesus himself embodied and exemplified this sort of approach. And I'm suggesting he is uniquely capable of empowering us to release our own death grips so that we too can have this open-handed, open-minded, open-hearted posture toward our lives. So let me read this scripture today that I'm going to be referring to. It comes from Philippians 2. Paul writes this, and he says this. Think of yourselves the same way Jesus Christ thought of himself. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to or grasp onto. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He emptied himself and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Powerful, right? This was probably a song, actually, back in the day an early hymn that celebrated the amazing and mind-bending thing that God did in Christ, emptied himself. Super inspiring. It's kind of a worshipful picture of who Jesus is and what he did. It just makes you appreciate him. Like, that That ought to be a song. That's really, really powerful and beautiful. But it's even more than that. It's even more than that because that's a model, what we're reading there. It's an example. It's a template about not holding on to tightly and how to go through this process that will transform us and really in every area of our lives a self-emptying process where we learn to let go of even the deep and important things about ourselves in order to gain something even better right so why why would we do this and why would we think of ourselves the way jesus did and empty ourselves why would we ever do that well in a nutshell It's because by releasing this death grip, it enables us to connect to others in a way you can't do otherwise. To connect and know ourselves and, of course, to connect to God in a whole new way. That's my big premise, and I'll come back to that. But let's talk for a minute about why we do that. Why we do this at all. Why do we hang on so tightly? Why are we more apt to approach faith from this death grip mentality as opposed to being open-handed about it? I think it might be because we all crave certainty in our lives. We all want things to be certain. We have very uncertain, a very uncertain reality, so we grasp onto things because we all desire a sense of certainty. We all want that. Certainty about God, certainty about life. And as it turns out, there are lots and lots of reinforcements in the, in the Christian world for this death grip of certainty, this sort of approach to faith and life. There's a lot of uh, examples of that. Uh, actually, a lot of people practice their faith in this way, that death grip way. I used to do that. 
it kind of started that way for me. Uh, when I began my whole spiritual journey, uh, I really saw faith primarily as something that could provide answers to the questions that I had. I had questions about life and about God and about the universe, and I wanted some certainty. So that's what motivated me at the beginning. A little bit more background. So I grew up happily in a uh, very secular, liberal home, uh, non-religious. I had no exposure to faith or spirituality or church. Uh, Really, for the first third of my life, I just had no interest or concern about any of this stuff. It just, I really didn't care, to be honest. It just wasn't interesting to me. This all changed, though, uh, near the very end of my high school career, when I had an experience, a very strange experience, that left me feeling pretty convinced that there is some sort of spiritual dimension to life. That's where things started for me. Now, this realization as a high school kid, came uh, as quite a shock, let's say. It was quite a shock. And it left me with lots of questions. So I first began pursuing faith to try to get some answers, right? To get some sort of framework to understand how to make sense of the world. I needed to figure things out. That's where faith started for me, my whole journey. What about you? Do you remember or can you identify what first motivated you to consider faith? What was it that made you, what what need were you trying to address? What was it going on in your life? Do you remember? What motivated you? What were your motivations to pursue faith? It's an interesting question because it's helpful to think about those starting points of our journeys when we're trying to look at the long-range trajectory of things. So for me, I had this strange experience in high school. And then shortly after that, a few months, the beginning now of my college career, I have this deep and meaningful connection with Jesus. And at that moment, I decide I want to start following him. It was very powerful. But still, I had all kinds of questions. Lots of questions. And what I learned is people had all kinds of answers. It turns out there's this whole branch of, branch of Christian faith that claims to have all the answers to the biggest mysteries of life. And that was actually very attractive early on. I really liked that. I actually learned there was a, there was a honest-to-goodness radio show called The Bible Answer Man. And you could call into this show with any question whatsoever, and he would give you the answer. It was amazing. If you were wondering about heaven and hell or curious about other religions, or you want to know what God thinks about relationships, or what he might say about our politics, anything, this guy would use his radio show and carefully mansplain God's position on these topics. And actually, it was more probably like God-splaining, because this guy was saying his authority was the Holy Bible, which apparently God had written, and so his interpretation was to be taken at utmost seriousness. He can interpret all these topics and tell you what God wants in any and every situation. And he could give you answers, and he could defend the faith from every challenge. And he did it in a way that kind of made me feel good when I, you know, with my newfound belief back then. It was a sense of certainty, and it felt good. Now, this is what we all do, right, this process. We all do this in all our areas of our life. It's not just faith. I mean, anytime you have an experience or an epiphany, you arrive at some new conclusion, 
in any area, then we start looking for the evidence that backs that up. That's just how we're wired. Anything that helps us defend our new position, that's human nature. So we surround ourselves with the evidence and the input that backs us up, and we get the echo chamber effect and all that. Why do we do that? Because I think we all want some level of certainty in our life, something we can grab a hold of, and something we can hang on to. But unfortunately, this often becomes what I'm calling a death grip. So for me, as a young person who was new to faith and wanting to make sense of this world and this experience that I'd had, the Bible answer man type of thing, was very informative and very interesting for a while. For a little while. Eventually, as you can guess, I started to see these limitations to this approach to faith. I mean, at first, at first it seemed really deep, really deep that this guy could answer any question. But over time, I began to realize that actually it's a very shallow way to think about faith. Yes, faith does provide some answers to the questions that we all have. It does. But certainly not all of them. I mean, if we're honest, every question that faith answers, it kind of leaves us with some others. That's the nature of things. So now, after 35 years of following Jesus, I see things a little differently. I see faith differently. Now I wonder if faith isn't so much about providing satisfying answers to all the mysteries of the universe. It might be something totally different. Maybe faith is about providing a connection to Jesus that allows us to approach the big questions of life with grace, positivity, and open-hearted humility. That seems like a better definition of faith to me nowadays than providing the big answers. Are you with me? Good. So I think it would be arrogant to say we have all the answers. I actually think faith allows us to be honest about our uncertainty. It's not trying to say we've got it all figured out. I think true faith stays open and teachable. It's willing to learn. There's always room to grow. Because look, if God is real, then God is big, right? And so how could we possibly feel like we've got everything figured out? We've mastered God and the mysteries of the universe. But people do that. And here's the really curious thing I've thought about. This happens both in very religious settings, but also in very secular settings. The same mentality is there. Anytime someone has all the answers, well, there's nothing more to learn. There's nothing to discuss. So in a very ironic sort of way, uh, I would suggest that a fundamentalist Christian is actually quite similar to a convinced atheist. There's a real similarity there because they can either preach their atheism or their belief, but there's no room for an open discussion when everything's all figured out. It's either way, it's a fist. It's not an open hand, and so it's tough to connect. Follow me? So that brings us back to Philippians. You know what the most incredible thing about that verse we read? To me, it, the most incredible thing is not that Jesus let go of his divinity and emptied himself, although that's pretty mind-bending. The most incredible thing about it is why he did that, the reason. 
Why would he empty himself out like that and let go? He did it to connect. He did it to draw near to human beings, to better love people. The Bible teaches that Jesus laid aside his divinity to actually interact with people, human beings. He did it so that he could sit around the campfire at night with his friends after a long day of work. He did it so he could attend a wedding and take part in the great joy of the happy couple and the family. He did it so he could grab a kid like those kids who just got dedicated and hold them on a lap and just enjoy the life and vitality. Jesus did all of that, gave up his divinity so he could better love people. And that's why Paul is writing this to the, the Philippians. That's, that's his motivation for writing this. He's not writing to these, uh, you know, these people in this church saying, listen, you need to release your death grip because it's the right thing to do. Jesus gave up his divinity. The least you can do is give up your puny little lives. That's not what he's saying. Here's the context for this section of scripture. It's a beautiful encouragement. He says, if you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, and if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other and be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Follow Jesus' example. Boom. And then he goes into that section we read a little earlier. Why? Why should we let go and release our grip? Why would we do that? To love each other and be deep-spirited friends. I love that phrase. To love each other and be deep-spirited friends. It really is all about connection. Right? A tightly held fist can't share or connect. I can, I can threaten with it, you know. I can, you know, shake it at you. I could maybe pummel you with it, but I can't really connect. That takes an empty, open hands to embrace and to share. It's a whole posture towards life. So thinking about old age, you know, releasing our death grip, getting to the end game we want. All we want is love and deep, love each other and deep spirit. Don't we? That's what we want. We want love and deep spirited connections. That's what we want most, I'll bet, when we look into this end game, our, our lives as a whole. So I want, I want you to hear from someone today who's learning some of these things uh, in a more vivid way than you can imagine. Our friend Melinda Jean-Louis is the picture of love and deep spirited connection. And she is in the midst of letting go in a very, very, very profound way. Let me tell you what happened with our friend Melinda before she comes. Exactly four weeks ago today, actually on Easter morning of all times, um, a headache she had turned into an emergency room visit, uh, which quickly turned into a diagnosis that there was a tumor in her head. Stunning her. Stunning all of us who know and love Melinda. And there's a lot of us who know and love Melinda, and we're all stunned. And within a couple days, 
she's getting brain surgery to remove what was thankfully a benign tumor. Nonetheless, obviously her life has been completely upended in the last four weeks. And she has very graciously agreed to share her experience with us and what she's learning. Would you welcome Melinda? to be my cane, but I think I could stand for 10 minutes, so I, I practiced standing before. So, <laughs> so good morning, everyone. Um, I, I'm Melinda, and I just, before I say anything, I just want to make sure to publicly just thank this community. <laughs> and you guys know I'm a crier, so just deal with it. Um, because for the way you've walked with me through what has been the darkest and hardest seasons, season of my life. I have never felt so supported and like so many people had my back like I have these last four weeks. Being in the hospital for the last month, I was discharged on Thursday. Um, showed me some of the most beautiful things about what it means to be part of the body of Christ. Your prayers, fasting, texts, calls, visits, just really moved my heart so much and just showed me how God used each one of you to show me how I was not and am not alone in this life. I had been having really annoying health issues for about a year or maybe two now. Um, I had depth perception issues, which I just thought was I needed glasses. Um, because, like, when I would walk down the stairs of the subway, I would sometimes feel like I was going to fall. So I, like, immediately grabbed the railing, you know, which we do. Um, and then last year, I had, like, many months of, like, severe bouts of nausea where I literally couldn't go do the things that I had planned to do, so I would constantly be canceling on friends and, you know, because I felt like I was going to throw up all the time. And then this year, in January, I started to have, like, headaches, and the headaches would come and go at different times in the day, um, but, and they'd be varying levels of pain, but they would all get resolved with some pain meds, so it was fine. And then in February, at the end of February, I had a, a weird, freaky little fall, where I broke my ankle just at the curb, like, and there was nothing wrong with the space, but I broke my ankle um, there. And then I had to have ankle surgery that month. And then the weekend before Easter Sunday, the headaches returned, and they just wouldn't stop for, like, four days. So then... One of my 40 days of faith prayer this year was to asking God to heal me because I was tired of always having some ailment that was getting in the way of me living my life. But on Easter Sunday, I didn't know that his answer to that prayer would lead me going to the ER and being told I can't leave because I need to have emergency brain surgery because there's a tumor at the back of my head that's putting pressure on my brain. That week, I had two other surgical procedures. The first one was up here, and then 
The other one was a blood vessel thing, and then the other one was the actual tumor resection. Each one was longer than the next. You know, the first one was an hour and a half, then four hours a couple days later, then 12 hours the following day. And putting my body through excruciating pain, and I was bedridden, and not able to do the regular things that we enjoy doing in the privacy of our own homes. And the more I went from procedure to procedure, the more I was faced with the possibility, the very frightening thought of possibly losing the Melinda that I had worked so hard these last several years to love, to enjoy, to invest in building up in preparation for whatever I felt like God had called me to do on this earth. It felt ridiculous, like absolutely ridiculous because when we had a very eccentric ER doctor, when he came to tell us the news, the good news and the bad news, the good news is we know what it is, bad news is you have a little tiny mask in the back of your head. <laughs> All I could do was laugh hysterically because I couldn't believe that this was happening to me. And I immediately, immediately felt like I was transported to another world where I'm watching this episode of Grey's Anatomy and like, <laughs> and that this couldn't be what my life had turned into. Like, how did God just like take me from my real life and drop me here, you know, single, 31 years old, faced with a story that felt so far from what I thought God had in store for me, and very far from all my life experiences that have brought me thus far. After God and I had worked so hard, pushed so hard, got stronger than I had ever been, and now I'm faced with the possibility of losing all that. If I chose to remove the tumor, I was told that I may lose my ability to speak, to eat, to breathe. <laughs> my memory may be impaired. And if I had a stroke during cooking, and even my ability to walk on my own. Anyone who knows me knows I love to eat. <laughs> and speaking, mm. I mean, <laughs> I'm a talker. So <laughs> that's part of what I always felt like God had made me to be, a speaker. Now, let's not forget how obsessed I was becoming with getting stronger and lifting and pushing heavy weights and doing heavy squats and stuff. So what kept me going that week and fighting for my life this last month? I know it's going to sound cliche because a lot of people say it, but it really was knowing that God was with me and that even though I don't know where this is all going, somehow I know that he does. And one promise that I felt like he made me while I was facing the last surgery was that while this road is a dark road that I don't know anything about, that he promised me that he would light the way each step of the way. And I am convinced that Jesus fought tooth and nail to get me to the hospital when I did, because I was told that if I waited one more day, I would have had a seizure. And he provided amazing healers that I, di I didn't have to do anything for. I got chiefs of departments and all kinds of amazing doctors. And I was like, I did nothing for that. <sighs> Holy Spirit did the powerful work of making her voice be the loudest that Easter Sunday amidst all the judgment, even my own judgment, of going to the ER for a headache. 
and I got lots of snares and sneers along the way as well, so it was fun. Um, and she brought me to a place where I had the courage to let go of who I have spent my whole life being, a doer, an independent, ruthless woman who isn't scared to go trek to work with an ankle surgery and going, taking a knee scooter into the NYC subway system. <laughs> while all my colleagues would tell me things about how they wouldn't have come to work if they were in my position, to now, where being, being put in a position to lose, where I could lose all that and still say yes to the riskiest of the surgical options that were, that were presented to me and tell the surgeons, go ahead and try to, to take the whole tumor out. That yes was me consenting to the possibility of never being able to speak to my friends again. Or never being able to eat the foods that I love so much. Because I was ready to follow Jesus into this place where I had no idea what the outcome would be at all. Because I trusted that God brought me there. And he was leading me in order for us to fight with all our might, the enemy's attempt to steal, literally kill, and destroy me. God and I are on a journey now that leads to a place that I think brings me a lot of fear and uncertainty. Because, but also it's a place <clears throat> that signifies new life and transformation. And from what he shared for me, I believe that place is the cross. So when I felt like God showed me that in the surgical ICU, my first reaction was anger, actually. And I'm still a little angry, you know, but anyway, I'm getting over it. <laughs> but because I really, I really wasn't looking for transformation <laughs> at this point in my life. But at the same time, I was reminded that I follow a Jesus who was willing to die in order for us to have new life. So why wouldn't I, his follower, be constantly beckoned into new and more opportunities to somehow experience some kind of death so I can get some kind of new life. In some ways, this tumor, this non-existent, barely there tumor, has brought <clears throat> some freedom to my life now because I feel like whatever I do next is gonna be like bonus. Because, because not, no, not no one, not even the doctors thought they would be able to get as much of it out as they did. They took out 98% of it. And I think all the people in my world will just be in awe because, look, I can, I can stand, I can talk, I can walk. So whatever I do next is like, you know, whatever. She had a brain tumor. So <laughs> <laughs> and the clinicians at the hospital wouldn't stop telling me how my, my response to the surgery was anything but miraculous. While I am on the other side of this, I'm still in recovery. I have lots of rehab to do, and I don't know when I will reach this new body's limit. Will I ever be able to run again? Or will I ever be able to lift 70 pounds above my head? I'm not allowed to lift 10 now, so anyway, we'll see. And will I be able to squat 120 pounds like I did before? I don't know if I'll be able to do that either, and I won't know for a really long time. Right now, I get winded after six blocks, of walking and give me two flights of stairs and I need a water break. But while I'm now smack dab in the middle of this very strange and unfamiliar road, 
I know God wants me to stay connected to this life and not look at my life as if I'm watching it from far away. He wants me to embrace the fact that now my wonderful mom has my back when I'm in the shower. He wants me to let go of ruthless, independent Melinda and somehow learn that it's okay to feel like I've been sent back to infancy, <clears throat> all because I can surrender my need to be in control to him, knowing that he, his desires and his plan for me is always good, and that he would never take me anywhere that would be less than life-saving and restoring. Thank you. kills me is that Melinda's story is not just about, you know, hanging in there through the hardship, holding on tightly, even though things are so rough. It's much deeper than that. She's trusting Jesus enough to actually let go. And that's faith. Let go and let Jesus hold on to her. So faith is not about tightening our hold, grasping, clinging on to even the good things. That's a misunderstanding. It's about yielding ourselves so that we can connect in an even deeper way with people around us and with God. And that takes trust. I mean, to voluntarily open up and lay down the good parts of ourselves. I mean, we could only do that if we actually trust that there's a real and loving person on the other end. And there is. Jesus really is there. And we can trust that he will interact with us personally. He will help us release these grips so that our hands and our hearts are open. Like Melinda, we can trust that he has our best interests at heart. So three quick practical suggestions before we go into our worship time. The first one is very simple. I encourage us to identify the things that I cling to most tightly. I just identify the things I cling to most tightly. Could be faith, could be a philosophy, it could be an identity, could be our family, our relationship, a dream. Those are all very good things. Do you know what it is for you? Can you name it? It's an important step to just simply identify this is something I hang on to very tightly. And then here's a very, very practical thing. How about we actually use these physical gestures? A tightly clenched, fisted grip versus an open, relaxed hand, right? Because this actually represents what we want for our souls. You often see this historically for worship or prayer, an outward expression bodily of what we're asking for or what we're feeling, raising hands, kneeling. This is all, you know, body language can, has always been a very powerful way to connect our physical with the spiritual. It's very helpful. So don't be afraid to put more energy into physical expressions. I mean, I, as I was preparing this, I kept doing this. Like, yeah, I, uh, okay. That is really powerful when you attach it with what we're talking about. Open up. Lastly, 
Take Jesus up on his offer to connect with you now. Take him up on the offer. He's willing to connect with you right now. He let go of everything because of his great love for you. So don't wait the very moment to interact, to connect. We're going to have it here just in a moment. And as we do, as we open ourselves up, he will cause our life to move in a good direction. The trajectory will be good. He's going to help us grow in the direction we want, have a better end game than we could ever imagine. Let me pray for you. Let's pray for me, all of us. God, thank you for the... uh, First off, thank you for what you're doing in Melinda's life and that she's a part of our family. We ask that you continue to bless her with healing and restoration. And Lord, we thank you that her story is now partly our story. We get to enter in with her. And we love her and we thank you for what you're doing. And God, we recognize that you're offering in all of us right now an opportunity to connect. So help us to do that.